Well, good morning. You know, there are moments in life when you feel like you just woke up. I, I don't mean literally. I don't mean like right now. But there are these moments where we, we feel like we've just stepped out of an impenetrable mental or spiritual fog. Uh, we're suddenly, uh, we've got this, this clarity, this decisive awareness that we, we can't believe that we had lacked. Uh, where suddenly we know with just great certainty, it is time for change. Suddenly realizing that we've been not just drifting off course, but maybe even laboring in the wrong direction. But then, but then, uh, we see clearly. Again, it's almost as if we'd been sleeping, even though we were wide awake. But now, what, what we used to consider as normal, it, it's now unthinkable. It, continuing the way things have been to us, it seems unsupportable. Real change is the only acceptable option. I think that's the mindset of the people of Israel where we pick up this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 7. That's our text this morning. So I'm going to invite you to do this. Hey, grab your Bible, open up to 1 Samuel 7. And will you stand with me? I want to encourage you to follow along. I'm going to read the chapter. I'm going to begin in verse 2. We covered verse 1 with last week's passage. 1 Samuel chapter 7, being in verse 2, here's what it says. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath Jerem. Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. Samuel told them, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the ashtrests that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths and only worshiped the Lord. Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence. They fasted that day and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up toward Israel. When the Israelites heard about it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. The Israelites said to Samuel, Don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the Philistines. Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to a place below Bethkar. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shen. 
He named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. The cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored. Israel even rescued their surrounding territories from Philistine control. There was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he would go on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he would judge Israel at all these locations. Then he would return to Ramah because his home was there. He judged Israel there and he built an altar to the Lord there. Let's pray. Father, amidst all these strange names and strange practices, I pray that you would, you would speak to us. God, help us to understand not only what went on with your people, in the midst of their time in history. But God, help us to see just how relevant this is to us and to our day and to our situation. And God, I pray that you would move in the midst of this time in our hearts. God, that you would draw us to yourself wholeheartedly. God, that we would be willing to cast aside all else that we might look to when we ought to be looking to you. Speak to us in this time, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It seems to be obvious that the Israelites had drifted away from any sort of real connection with the Lord. Uh, they were still going through all the motions. Uh, they were still offering sacrifices. They kept all the rituals and the relics. Uh, they had even gotten the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines after it had been captured. But there wasn't anything real to their religion, and they knew it. It was hollow. It was empty religion. Uh, you know, Religion without right relationship with God, it's always hollow. Church without submission to Christ, it feels tedious. Even scripture reading without obedience seems pointless. And prayer without a willingness to crucify the flesh is futile. Mostly, empty religion is lonely. It's lonely because there's no closeness to the Lord. And so eventually, despite all the religious decor, you, you might find yourself like the Israelites here, longing for the Lord. Look at verse 2. Time went by until 20 years had passed since the ark had been taken to Kiriath Jerem. And then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. 20 years. 20 years after the ark had been returned to them, and yet they had still not returned to the Lord. But now they were longing. They were desiring something more, something real. 
Uh, that word there that is translated longed for, it communicates a grievous and passionate desire for something, a complete rejection of the present circumstances, a decision that, that something, something has got to change. It portrays a heart that is sick and tired of how things have been going. And those who can relate to that, Jesus says to you in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, come to me. Come to me, all, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Jesus says, take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I want you to notice two things there. First, Jesus invites anyone, absolutely anyone who is weary and who is burdened, who is sick of how things have been, and no matter what they've done, no matter who they've become. You know, you and I, we tend to think about this dynamic in terms of those who are, well, not much like us. We think about the fact that God will accept the hardened outlaw biker or the, the Mexican drug lord or even a murderer can come to him. But I think it would be far more productive for us to remember and to take comfort in the fact that even religious people who struggle with hypocrisy can come to Jesus. That even gossiping, judgmental, or compromising church folk, that any who are weary and who are burdened, who are longing for the Lord, who want to move away from empty religion and back into right relationship with the Lord, that they can come. To all of us, Jesus says, come to me. He says, come to me to take my yoke upon you and to learn from me. That's really the second thing to notice there. Notice what it is that Jesus is inviting us to do. He is inviting us to choose to submit ourselves to him, to accept his yoke, his harness, his authority over our lives and our living. It's the very same thing that Samuel calls Israel to and back in 1 Samuel 7. Look at verse 3. Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of the foreign gods and the ashtoreths that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only him. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. And so the Israelites removed the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the, uh, the, the local gods of that area, and worshipped only the Lord. So in an outward sense, the Israelites had been worshipping God, but here's the reality Here's the catch. They were also looking to the false gods of the Canaanites. They offered their, their sacrifices to God, but they let themselves get caught up into the practices of the culture in which they lived. They let themselves get drawn into, if you will, Canaanite thinking. 
They prayed to God, but when God didn't do what they wanted, they would pull out the Baal, the Ashtoreth, the fertility or prosperity gods of that region and of that day. Here's the problem. God doesn't play that game. He wants our whole heart. He wants our complete dedication, our exclusive worship. He, he wanted Israel and he wants us to do what Joshua called the people to in Joshua 24, 15. Remember there, it's that Joshua gives this, this final impassioned speech to the people and he says, it's time to choose. It's time for you to choose this day whom you're going to serve. Jesus said the same thing. When tempted by the devil in the wilderness and in Luke chapter four, there in verse eight, Jesus said this, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, it's one or the other. It's God or the stuff and the ways of this world. You can't live a life worshiping both of these things. So when Israel says that they are desperately hungering for God, Samuel invites them to put legs on their words, to put into practice the things that they are saying they believe to actually get rid of their foreign gods. You see, their, their verbal claim of longing for the Lord, it had to be lived out. It had to be lived out by casting away those things that they had put in the place in their lives where only God should have been. It was like John the Baptist tells the outwardly repenting Pharisees in Matthew 3.8. He says that they must produce fruit consistent with repentance. And they must actually do what it is that they are saying. Look at what it says here. In 1 Samuel 7, their repentance, it, it, it was something that must start in an inward place. It had to be with all their heart. It had to be a heart action, but it wasn't enough to just have it in their hearts. They had to walk it out. It had to become an outward, actual action item. They needed to get rid of the foreign gods. It's just too easy to say that we long for the Lord. It's much harder to actually begin to remove the Baal and the Ashtoreth from our lives. It's much harder to live out the decision to worship only God. So they had to get rid of all the idols that they'd been depending on. They had to choose to worship only God. And you know, that was a long time ago. And it was expressed in, in ways that it seemed foreign and odd to us. And yet, this translates, doesn't it? Us too. We also must get rid of every idol, every carnal crutch, every secret compromise. We must get rid of everything that we turn to when we ought to be turning to the Lord. We've got to surrender it all to God. 
Then in verse 5, Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord on your behalf. And so they gathered at this place called Mizpah, and they drew water and poured it out in the Lord's presence, and they fasted that day, and they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. So they come together. They come together. They do this together. You know what? Repenting in community is significant because it creates a dynamic where we have support and we have accountability. That's part of why scripture tells us in James 5.16 that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. Well, we don't like that, do we? It'd be nice if that wasn't in the Bible, but it is. Guys, we need each other and we need this dynamic in our lives. It is not God's intention for us to try to do this in isolation and privacy. We are called by Scripture to learn together, to serve together, and yes, even to repent together. That's why it's so vital that we love each other deeply and openly. You know, if we're looking down on our brothers or sisters in Christ, if we are keeping others at a distance, if we are, as I would phrase it with my kids, just being a stinking brat, <laughs> that is never going to lead others or ourselves into a place where we are being encouraged in the Lord by each other. Friends, we have got to love each other. We have got to love each other enough to speak the truth to each other, and we've got to love each other enough that when we speak the truth to each other, that there is so much love delivered with that that the relationship continues. This is what we see here. Samuel so incredibly bluntly calls them out, calls them to repentance. And yet Samuel must have loved them enough uh, that when he calls them to come together to this place called Mizpah, they actually come. They actually come and they are comfortable enough with Samuel and with his love for them that then when they gather together, they begin to vulnerably pour their hearts out to the Lord. That's what most Bible scholars think this whole thing of pouring out water represents. It's, a, it's the same idea that we find in Lamentations chapter 2 there in verse 19 where Jeremiah pleads and he says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your hearts like water before the face of the Lord. To just empty out your heart. To be completely transparent and real with the Lord there before your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's what we see happening here. They come together. They begin to confess their sin to God and to each other. They worship God. And then they turn away from their own strength. And they put their trust in the Lord. 
That's, that's what fasting is all about. Did you notice here in verse 6 that they were fasting as well? They chose not to eat. And understand, this wasn't some sort of bribe for God. Like, God just likes it when we're hungry. He does not take bribes, okay? That doesn't work with him. It wasn't a way to earn God's favor, to really impress him. Anything less than the perfect righteousness of Christ is not going to impress God, okay? No, they fasted in order to put into practice what it was that they were professing, the fact that their hope, that their trust was in the strength of God, not in the strength of their flesh. They were willingly weakening themselves physically, putting themselves in a, a, a compromised pr- position as a reminder, as a reminder that, that they were not depending on the strength of their flesh, but rather they were submitted to and dependent upon God himself. And you know, when they did that, Immediately, the enemy tested their resolve. Did you notice that? Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that they had gathered at Mizpah, their rulers marched up. So here comes the Philistine army. And the Israelites, they heard about it and they were afraid. Why? Because the Philistines were stronger. They had military technology that the Israelites didn't have yet. They had a stronger army. And so here comes the Philistine army and the Israelites say to Samuel, don't stop now, man. Don't stop now. Keep crying out to the Lord God for us. It's our only hope. Our only hope is that God would save us from the Philistines. So here they are in a a physically weakened state from fasting and and the enemy army rolls up They've made the choice to trust in the Lord and not in their Canaanite idols, not in their own strength. But, you know, it's one thing to make those decisions in theory. It's another thing to live them out when things begin to get real and things are about to get real. So what are they going to do? I'm sure they were tempted to, to start looking around. Where did we throw that idol of Baal? You know, we got to find that thing quick or at least to begin to question their decision to fast and to weaken their flesh. But they don't. They actually have a great response here. Having started by putting their trust in the Lord, even when they are engulfed by the coming crisis, they continue. They continue to put their trust in the Lord. They cry out to Samuel, don't stop now. Keep going, man. Keep going because we really need the Lord to save us from the Philistines. They walk out. What the Lord says to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, they're in verses 9 and 10 about trusting the Lord amidst our weakness. The Lord says there to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And don't miss this. For my power is perfected in weakness. My power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, so I will most gladly boast about my weakness so that Christ's power may reside in me. 
Paul says, if that's how it works, if God's power is most free to be active in my life in the midst of me being in position of weakness, and I'm all for weakness. Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He isn't talking about the strength of his flesh, but the strength of God working in the midst of his weakness. What Paul is saying is this, is when you and I willingly choose our own weakness to not depend upon our flesh so that we might fully depend upon God's strength. It is in times like that that God's strength will always be more than enough to cover our weakness. I think it's interesting, not surprising, but it's interesting that here, uh, when they are actually trusting in God, Israel is terrified. But do you remember back to chapter four when they were idiotically, superstitiously trusting in God's golden box? Uh, they thought it would be their lucky charm to win the battle. They were as confident as could be. What's up with that? Well, I think the lesson here is this. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. The worst advice you can ever take is this. Follow your heart. <laughs> Just follow your heart. No, I don't think so. How about this instead? Do what God's word says, regardless of how you feel. Obey him. Submit yourself to him. And watch his strength cover your weakness. Now, notice what saves them. Because clearly here, it is not their newfound faithfulness or obedience. It isn't their performance. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, you know those Israelites, they're really getting it together. They're really pretty squared away. I think, honestly, I'm fairly impressed by them, and so I will save them. That isn't what turns the tide. God answers, God saves them when a lamb is sacrificed. Look at verse 9. Then Samuel took a young lamb, literally a nursing lamb, and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him, Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. Get this picture in your head. It was an innocent lamb's life being sacrificed that brought about the response of God. It was when this innocent lamb was given the punishment that the Israelites deserved that God began to act on their behalf. That lamb took the guilt for their sin, and they were given its innocence. You and I should know this, that little lamb, that little lamb was nothing but a placeholder. It was just a sign, a sign pointing forward to Jesus to his one true sacrifice for our sin. 
as John the Baptist declared about Jesus when he saw him down at the Jordan River, John 1, 29. And John sees Jesus and he cries out, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, that's a weird greeting. That's a weird thing to say. Look at the Lamb. I think that's Jesus, John. But he was saying something. I think he knew who it was. John is saying, look, this one is the sacrifice. This is the one who will take upon himself the sin of the world. The one true sacrifice that every lamb and bull ever offered to God was pointing to. And so here in 1 Samuel 7, when the sacrifice is offered, when they acknowledged that they had no way of dealing with their guilt. When they acknowledged their need for God's undeserved grace and forgiveness, partway through verse 10, look what happens. The Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. This was miraculous. This shouldn't have happened. And then the men of Israel charged out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, striking them down all the way to the place below Bethkar. So God miraculously intervenes. Notice that they were defeated by Israel even before Israel charged out from Mizpah. They were defeated before they were even engaged in battle because this is something that God chose to do. That God chose to do, not because Israel was righteous, not because they measured up, but because they acknowledged their need. God sent thunder and absolute confusion upon the Philistines, and he sent a good deal of confidence upon Israel, who chased the enemy out of the land. In order to memorialize what God did, Samuel took a stone, he set it up as a pillar, set it up between these two places, one called Mizpah, the other called Shen, and he named it Ebenezer, a word that means the Lord has helped us. You know, it's a good thing for us to remind ourselves to find ways to remember the faithfulness of God. Because, man, we tend to be forgetful. Verse 13, the Philistines subdued were subdued and did not invade Israel's territory again. The Lord's hand was against the Philistines all of Samuel's life. And so the context here is that the Philistines were defeated during Samuel's time for the period of Samuel's time, which they were. Uh, they did later return for Saul and David to fight against. In verse 14, the cities from Ekron to Gath, which they had taken from Israel, were restored Israel even rescued the surrounding territories from the Philistine control, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, the people who were living there within the land before Israel came. There was peace for Israel. There was peace because God was once again fighting for them. And not because they measured up. Only Jesus measures up. But God was fighting for them because they had openly confessed their sin. They had genuinely turned away from it. And they acknowledged their need for God's grace. It didn't stay that way, not even really for all that long. 
you know, humanity, we are so very prone to sliding into compromise, aren't we? But that's why God gave them Samuel, uh, to judge them. We look at that word with a very negative connotation, but here it is. It is something that is very positive. What it means here is that Samuel was leading them and he was challenging them. He was reminding them of God's ways. Look at verse 15. Samuel judged Israel throughout his life. Every year he'd go on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah and he would judge Israel at all these locations and then he would return to Ramah where his home was. And he judged Israel there as well and built an altar and worshiped the Lord there. God gave young Israel the gift of Samuel. And friends, God has given us each other. He's given us each other to encourage each other and to challenge each other, to persistently build each other up and to lovingly speak truth into each other's lives, to spur each other on to love and to good deeds, to point each other to Christ and to remind each other of what it is that the Savior has done for us. That's our job. It's to build each other up. That's what, that's what church is to be be involved, connected, to love each other deeply. Jesus invites us, if we are weary and burdened, to come to him, to take his yoke upon us, to learn from him, and in doing so, to find rest for our souls. Today we're going to close our time together a little differently. Usually we get to the end of the message and I pray and you just listen. And you shouldn't just be listening. You should be talking to God at the same time. This morning... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead, I'm going to guide us in a time of silent prayer. I'm going to read some scripture and I'm going to encourage you to meet with God and to let him speak to your heart. First John 1.5 tells us that God is light and that there's absolutely no darkness in him. So let's take a minute and let's pray and let's acknowledge God's absolute holiness, his perfection, his unassailable righteousness. Let's recognize that he is worthy of our submission to him and our worship of him.
A few verses later, in 1 John chapter 1, it says this, that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. Let's take a moment. And like David does in the Psalms, let's ask God to show us our sin. Let's ask him to give us a willingness to turn from it. Verse 9 promises us that if we confess our sin, that if we call it what it is, that we agree with God that it is sin, that he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Understand that whatever it is that you have confessed to God, He has forgiven you. He has cleansed you. You don't have to return to it. You don't have to carry it or its guilt and shame. He loves you. He has forgiven and he has cleansed you in order that he might draw you to himself. Let's thank God. Let's thank him for forgiveness, for cleansing, for welcoming us back into relationship with him. silently confessed your, your sin to God. The scripture tells us we're to confess our sin to each other as well. And so let's do this. Let's ask the Lord to show us where that should take place. What, what, what relationship with another Christian brother or sister would be appropriate for that? What setting? that we might have the encouragement and the accountability that he desires us to have. Father, we've seen from looking at the Israelites and God, honestly, just looking at our own lives, that it is entirely possible for us to practice empty religion, 
to drift into a place of being distant from you. Lord, we want close, unhindered relationship with you. We want nothing in the way. We thank you for your gracious forgiveness. God, thank you that you, you forgive us even before we ask. That the cross is enough. And God, I pray that you would shape us into a community of people who not only worship you and you alone, but who love each other well, well enough to challenge, and to encourage, and to strengthen each other. Work that within us, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name.